Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. Throughout history, it has been common for distant colonies to break away from their homeland. In a future where colonies are entire planets and light years from home, shall history repeat itself? The colony fleet Artist of Heaven that arrived in Beta Pictoris in 2998 after 63 light years of travel was very loyal to their ancestors on Earth, and Beta Pictoris was the third colony they had founded since leaving the Lagrange dockyards on a planned multi-millennia journey. Their small fleet was a guardinal fleet, as they were called, colonial missions who might spend a century between each stop, where they would let out part of the crew to settle a new world, stop to take on raw materials and fuel, then move out to their next target, manufacturing new colonial equipment and having children to raise more colonists, expanding and upgrading their ships and sometimes even making new ships. At each stop they do it again, letting off anyone who wants to settle and helping set the basic colony up while taking on materials and plotting their next leg. In turn those colonists would help send supplies and information to that fleet, and help maintain the infrastructure of relays and stalazers that would permit future trade and immigration to take place faster and easier. The first two systems the fleet colonized, now known as Brush and Easel, were doing their job admirably. Indeed the first colonial reinforcement fleet from Earth was already en route at nearly half of light speed along the huge laser relays now connecting those systems. Beta Pictoris was planning to be next in that line, and special too. The system was a young one, only about 12 million years old, and with many young planets only partially formed and rich in raw materials. They were going to be such a rich mining system that they could profitably export metals back to the solar system itself and its ever-growing demand for raw materials to build its emerging Dyson Swarm. The raw materials were so abundant and easily claimed that the colonial fleet decided to divide itself earlier than planned, creating a second fleet, Artist's Apprentice. With two fleets instead of just one, they could branch off into a new line of colonies. This turned out to be trickier than planned and there was a great shuffle of personnel settling or remaining on the fleet, or being moved to the new fleet, lots of new titles and rank in the fleet to be bestowed. A lot of people who suddenly had a chance at promotion decided to stay with the fleet instead, this deprived the fledgling colony of many exports and good leaders. All at the same time, they were being told they need to be ready to support two new relay chains, not just one, and a tech update package from home that improved engine speed meant they needed to get those relays running even sooner. Shortly after the fleet departed, they began noticing that the wear and tear on all those space mining operations and power collectors was far worse than planned. The system simply had too much scattered matter not yet clumped into planets, and while they thought they had accounted for it, maintenance needs were coming in higher than planned. At the same time, they were running with only about 60% of the spaceship technicians they originally planned, and many of the best had left with either fleet. In 3048 they received word that the first freighter was inbound to their system to pick up a cargo of refined metals to return to Seoul, against their standing contract to receive technical updates from home, and they didn't expect to have that cargo ready without delaying other vital projects. The freighter was expected to arrive quickly as it was mostly empty, 
with a few valuable but low-mass cargoes brought in from Esol, one part trade items, one part gifts to their youngest new sibling system. In 3062, the reinforcement fleet, Canvasor, left the dockyards at Neptune, not long after word reached the solar system of Beta Pictoris's successful colonization. They expected an arrival at the system as early as 3188 AD, but were coming by way of Esol, the second colony in the chain. In 3071, the freighter arrived, and their captain was disappointed to see Beta Pictoris, now an active colony for 73 years, was not thriving as much as hoped. She began to suspect they were in even worse straits, and not simply putting on a brave face, but actively being dishonest in their stunted progress. She asked to speak to the colonial governor, an old friend of hers as a midshipman on the Artist of Heaven's flagship 150 years ago. She was told he had died in an accident recently, and that things had become somewhat chaotic as a result. She believed this and accepted their request for a delay. When the colony asked for the materials on board her ship, she declined and asked for a personal face-to-face meeting with the new governor. The final message from the Fredo's XO was that his captain's shuttle had been destroyed and that he suspected foul play. A message from Beta Pictoris Alpha Colony shortly afterward claimed that the captain's shuttle had been destroyed by space debris and that she must not have recalibrated the ship for the more intense micrometeor activity in the system. A second message roughly a day later claimed that the freighter had been seized by Separatist pirates and the captain's shuttle may have been destroyed by them rather than by accident. Analysis at the easel system, conducted on the signal from the freighter to them, indicated that it was jammed. No previous mention of Separatist activity had been included in any report. They concluded there was now a high probability that Beta Pictoris had gone renegade, as some other systems had in other colonial efforts. Messages and probes were immediately dispatched. In 3115, Beta Pictoris received word from Neptune that the Canvasor fleet had departed and was en route. Neptune and Earth would first hear about the concerning activity at Beta Pictoris in 3134, 19 years later. In 3140, Canvasor received word from the Ezo system that Beta Pictoris still had not completed a stopping laser at their system and that their intelligence analysts had grave concerns about the veracity of any reports coming from there. If the Canvasor fleet continued at full speed, they would not be able to decelerate there if the relay system was not online. If it were online but in hostile hands, it could instead be used as a weapon. Decisions are hard, and all they see is a distant past, not the present. Once hostile hands might have since been overthrown, or succeeded by more moderate voices in the present. For the interstellar traveler, you leapfrog through time to each new destination, not just space, and generations pass between stops. So their attitudes can change greatly, and thus you must be prepared to change your mission too. What should Canvasor do? Canvasor's Admiral has a large fleet focused entirely on peace and trade, but is excellently well trained and saw action during the revolt on Triton in 2786. He agrees to Esau System's plan to slow and maneuver his fleet by using both their laser relay system and sending large fuel pods in front of his fleet at carefully coordinated speeds and locations to allow them to capture and refuel from them, and thus arrive at Beta Pictoris at best possible speed. They anticipate arrival in the year 3222, giving the Admiral 80 years to convert his fleet to handle a possibly belligerent colony. Ezo system is still a relatively new colony and can provide only limited aid, 
but they have dispatched a large number of probes toward Beta Pictoris and included communication and signal access to them to the Canvasar fleet. Nonetheless, they will be entering the situation with very confused and limited intel, and at very high speed. The colony would have just as many decades to prepare for an attack, so the Admiral commands intensive military training in virtual reality for all the crews and shifts onboard production from terraforming equipment to weapon systems. Flyby probes of Beta Pictoris are returning limited information of use, and often failing when passing through the system, while lower speed and decelerating probes to monitor the system are all failing within weeks or months of arrival and presumed destroyed. In 3116, after succeeding in their first rendezvous with a fuel pod from Esol, the Admiral issues a stern warning and command to Beta Pictoris, telling them to prepare to surrender all administrative control to the Admiral who will institute martial law until the matter is dealt with. No spaceship is to exceed 1% of light speed in that system until further notice or will be fired on. Any spaceship, station, or installation above a designated mass and power level will have probes sent to them. The destruction of that monitor probe will immediately result in an attack on the facility by the fleet. If these terms are not agreed to by the time the fleet reaches two light months from Beta Pictoris, they will open fire on any and all significantly sized facilities and vessels with guided relativistic slugs. In 3119, Canvasal Fleet hit the red line, 61 light days out from Beta Pictoris, and no surrender message had yet been received. So, the question now becomes, what the heck is going on at Beta Pictoris? I tried to leave this intentionally vague because my own reading of history is that a lot of conflicts occur because there is an unclear picture of motivation and capability. Here, Canvasal Fleet's Admiral has no idea if Beta Pictoris is actively hostile or not but the closer their fleet gets and the more they decelerate, the weaker the fleet's position. At speed, every munition they have carries devastating free energy, a handful of garbage released out the side of the ship to strike an immobile facility would be as powerful as a nuke, and we're assuming a fleet massing on order of many trillions of pounds or kilograms. As they slow, they not only lose that advantage, but also have to burn fuel that could propel more ordnance in order to slow down. They also need to fear the reverse, that the opposition might have put a minefield in front of them, that even a tiny and slightly stealthy drone with a guidance package could race into their path, on a trajectory their normal collision detectors aren't as vigilant in looking at, and at that speed, a collision with a fist-sized unarmed drone would have the same energy as a nuclear weapon. The colony, if their intent is hostile, gains nothing by alerting the approaching fleet that they are hostile. Thus even silence might be reasonably interpreted as belligerent behavior. As we say on the show a lot, there is no such thing as an unarmed spaceship, which cuts both ways, and that colony ship bringing more people to a friendly new colony would have little problem transforming into a warship of elite shock troops during that journey. Gardner ships by their nature breed and train folks up on their journeys and even without turning to cloning or building war robots, they can produce staggering pools of labor or soldiers in their decades-long journey to each new place. But the same is true of that colony, a century is a long time to arm yourself, and you are not limited by the raw materials and fuel in your cargo hold when you begin the trip. Strictly speaking, neither was that fleet, they could be decelerating bits of their fleet to land on rogue planetoids in interstellar space, mine them and then fire cargo pods of material to that fleet as could their last friendly port of call. 
but those stopping the mine along the way could then return to the trip themselves to catch up later, and one of the lagging vessels could be the missile boat that isn't going to slow down and can still be at high speed when the main fleet decelerated into the system and can send that lagging ship orders to fire relativistic slugs at the target. But the system maintains an advantage over the fleet in gathering and utilizing materials. Key thing though is that neither party has any clear incentive to be honest once things get tense or to trust the other side, and the situation has all the components of a Mexican standoff where no clear strategy exists for any entity to achieve a victory without crushing losses and from which they can't safely extricate themselves. Canvas or fleet could have stopped at the easel system or detoured elsewhere, indeed those split fleets, Artist of Heaven and Artist Apprentice are generally zigzagging out from Earth. The systems on their path are several degrees off course from each previous leg, and moving on a straight line to one of them would take them at least many light weeks wide of Beta Pictoris. That system's whole population, even with epic growth rates, still would not fill a single large metropolis or medium-sized nation, let alone feel provoked by such a wide detour. But with all that light lag, Canvaso has no way of knowing if either of those fleets is still on those courses, literally and metaphorically. They don't know if Beta Pictoris might be the first rebel colony of rebel fleets planning to leave independent colonies in their wake. Colonists are predisposed to an independent streak, after all. They don't even know if those fleets might have turned around to protect Beta Pictoris. A fleet could possibly have been lied to and told that Earth had fallen to tyrants and the fleet was coming to crush them into line. And again, we don't know that it didn't. I didn't say, and Earth has probably been broadcasting news the whole time, and even without some big internal shift or coup, think of how much our civilization changed in a couple centuries. Most of the audience for this show is from the US, the UK, or one of its former colonies or close neighbors. We do not too closely resemble the England of the Age of Sail that grew that empire, and I don't think any existing branch of that period is anxious for rule by King Charles over Oliver Cromwell, or George III over George Washington, or vice versa. Interstellar travel requires lifetimes, and no great evil need occur to lead to places very unaligned with their former partner's current state. You could make a good case that we've all grown together over the decades as in our proximity we've shared a lot of the same struggles and probably influence the outcomes of each other. One country bans slavery or gives women the vote, and the others tend to tilt that way a bit more, but when divided by light years and signal lag, that's unlikely to be the case. I left many other things vague too. Maybe Beta Pictoris had a coup, one of the ship's officers from the fleet felt passed over for a command when the fleet split and was relegated to the colony and decided they should be in charge. Maybe the governor died in a shuttle accident, it's a young colony pressed to dangerous efforts at settlement and production, and we did say Beta Pictoris was ultra-dense on micrometeors and also flooded with ultraviolet radiation compared to our own system, and likely that radiation is very hard on sensitive equipment like detectors. We don't know if that captain's shuttle was destroyed by a random rock or pirated by some minuscule faction. Maybe angry dock workers feeling overloaded with work took her hostage and the station command ordered signals jammed, which would be reasonable. Maybe the freighter got belligerent over their captain's death and provoked battle and lost, and Beta Pictoris realized how bad that looked 
how bad they'll fudgy the numbers to keep upbeat was now looking and panicked, and a generation later they've self-rationalized their behavior as justified against a tyrannic homeworld. Just look at the TV they've been sending recently, they've gone nuts. Maybe they were shooting at probes, or maybe those probes were just getting wrecked easier inside that micrometeor-rich protoplanetary system. Or maybe they turned to using more AI than was safe to help with their production shortfalls, and the system is now one giant paperclip maximizer or grey goo nightmare. Maybe they have been talking to the fleet's artist of heaven and artist apprentice and they did turn around and are coming back. Or they are not, they are part of what Earth has become and are making best time on unpredictable paths to far far away and Beta Pictoris is fortifying that system like crazy to block that fleet and cover the escape. The population will fight to the death and send scans of their uploaded mines through a probe sent out to capture those and transmit them to the fleet before dropping itself into a stall. Sci-fi is full of rebel colonies and where they aren't doing straight adaptations of historical events then they tend to assume an oppressive homeworld sending in the marines to capture the poor and anarchic but fundamentally good-hearted rebel colony planet. That can certainly happen, but frequently there are at least two sides to a civil war and rarely does either have a monopoly on good or bad behavior. We can list off the sorts of things that inspire rebellions, and they should be true in the future too, and I'm not sure even a post-scarcity colony would be immune to feeling stolen from or robbed by their home system, and I think it would limit that reason more. So too, we've noted that most people won't live on planets but instead on space habitats, which are inherently mobile, so a rebel colony can flee into the void, and the home system can just recolonize that spot if they feel it has special strategic value. It doesn't eliminate the need for conflict over that, but I think it does limit it. What's left? Well, light lag is the big one. It makes a rebellion seem way more possible, for one, as in Beta Pictoris' case, they knew they had 63 years before Earth even heard about that shuttle incident, and at least twice that time before a fleet could arrive from there, whereas their predecessor or neighboring colonies are still too young and small to be sending armadas of their own their way. Imagine tomorrow we found out that some island of a few hundred that we claimed as a territory had declared independence 200 years ago, and we just found that out because some bureaucrat forgot to pass the letter on to Congress or Parliament and that island just shrugged, flew their own flag, and kept up trade and tourism and the rare visitor just assumed their king was the local tribal chieftain and part of some local equivalent to a renaissance fair for travelers. Is this really very likely to end in carriers and cruisers and marines arriving to handle this rebellion? And if it did, are they really going to stand a chance? Some colony ward of a million people might be facing a homeworld of trillions, or more. And the answer is yes, which is the other half of this equation. It is hugely expensive in time and resources to mount interstellar expeditions, and the big thing that makes that cheaper and affordable is lots of automation. Smart automation. But a bunch of clanking self-replicators in our own solar system can be overseen by people who are plentiful still, and with none of that automation smarter than dogs, and may be programmed for that sort of loyalty too. It's a lot more of a concern with interstellar von Neumann probes who have little oversight, they need total control and decision making, even if dumb as doorknobs or programmed for utter loyalty, because they must be able to decide what to do next 
and able to reproduce and repair completely on their own. That's not required for clanking self-replicators at home. But a rebel colony fearing an attack from despots at home has far more reason to risk dangerously productive and independent AI to help build their war machine and run it. It also has that as its WMD. By and large the purpose of nukes in modern diplomacy, war and strategy, is a defensive one. If you've got them, no one wants to try invading you or making you desperate. They don't really have much offensive value, strange though that sounds, unless only you possess them, and the key there is that folks believe you will use them if you are desperate and feel like you have nothing to lose. Typically the case if you are the invaded rather than the invader. Dangerously mucking around with AI is the equivalent of that for a colony world and likely to involve the same dynamics. You walk a thin line between turning every hand against you or your aggressor because they don't care about you much, but they do care about flotillas of Bazooka AI space leviathons being unleashed. This is interesting because it means there's a good chance any such rebel would have installed lots of safeguards anyway and not be unleashing Skynet, but something more scorched earth, and I could easily see that meaning large swaths of space got full of fairly dumb but dangerous von Neumann infestations. One of your cheapest tricks that's likely to be seen as principally defensive and low danger to others is to unleash those probes to set up a system-wide Kessler Syndrome event out past your inner colonies, something akin to the protoplanetary disk damage issue we had at Beta Pictoris, as that's exponentially more dangerous to interstellar vessels coming in at speed and flyby probes. This is also a good defense against obvious attacks like relativistic kill missiles from the out system, though hardly a foolproof one and not one that gives you any offensive advantage itself. So there's definitely room for interstellar colonies to go rebel and feel like they have a real chance at achieving independence, even outnumbered thousands to one. And indeed, this is a lot of the reason we tend to assume that interstellar empires in a no FTL universe are more in the nature of loose confederacies with a shared charter of fundamental rights and principles and etiquette about interstellar trade and communication. The greater the inconvenience you can cause by disrupting someone, up to and including obliterating them, which is very inconvenient, the greater your ability to get them to agree to things that are not obviously beneficial to them. This could still include ties though. For instance, Earth is very likely to have a quasi-monopoly on technological advancement over its interstellar colonies for at least the next 10,000 years, and is likely to expect some recompense for that. Is likely also to be the source of raw materials and fuel for those colony ships, and a standard deal might be something like implied for Beta Pictoris. As you get established, starting with a mostly symbolic tithe, we expect repayment at high interest for that investment. We gave you a megaton of steel for your ship, we expect you to send back 100 megatons, one a decade for the next millennia, or to pay it forward, you must give over a ship and crew to the Grand Settlement Alliance within three centuries of the planetfall of your colonists, or both, and until then you get free technical updates from home and have cataclysm insurance. If the colony just isn't making it, you can send out the We Are Screwed beacon and put all your civilization on ice till pickup if needed. After that period, you can arrange a more long term trade deal, but have to agree to the Galactic Compact on safe trade and information relaying or so on. Again, it's nothing very onerous, and everyone else on board with it is likely to view you with distrust or contempt if you decline on failing to meet your obligations. 
This is a battlefield of reputation where being known for honesty and stability is probably critical, though as with any other battlefield, having a lot of guns and battlecruisers sure does help. For them, it's like paying dues to your local lodge or rotary, you might find it very beneficial, but even if you mostly did not, you'll probably keep paying them anyway because you want the goodwill of other members and believe in the general concept, but there's no threat of retaliation if you leave, just some eye-rolling and maybe some hard feelings or dislike. For there to be more than that, we'd have to be considering some more top-heavy empire, and I just don't see that in the cards for interstellar colonies in a no-FTL universe. Especially with the defensive advantage of time lag and scorched earth options like von Neumann probes. But that was interstellar colonies, and it's worth remembering that your default settled star system and settled planet are not any more synonymous than that planet is with a single fertile river delta. We looked at Beta Pictoris in the early 4th millennia, but back here on Earth we assume a far larger inhabited system and reference Rebellion at Triton and Dockyards at Neptune and Lagrange Point. Our system does not have 8 planets, and maybe 9 if we count Pluto. It has several million minor planets, including dozens of bigger dwarf planets, then 4 big rocky terrestrial ones, 2 ice giants and 2 gas giants. Most of those have moons, and a minor planet just a few kilometers wide is already sufficient to support the sort of settlements we often see in sci-fi doing the rebellion anyway. Here the entire metric shifts, because we definitely still have scorched earth options in play, the colony can threaten to nuke itself, and the homeworld can threaten to nuke them. The colony is very resistant to infantry attack, they basically live in a mix of maze and castle if they're buried into some asteroid or moon crater, but the homeworld probably has overwhelming resources against something that's small if it needs to use them. What's more, there's less likelihood there is a home world acting with unification. Earth has 200 nations, people often tend to assume one day it will be only one, but it is just as likely it's home to even more in the future, and a lot of smaller modern nations on Earth would be capitals of local interplanetary empires dwarfing any modern superpower. And while interstellar colonies can't really take advantage of factions back home, as it's too far to coordinate, some colonies in our asteroid belt can take advantage of internal disunion and make allies with the current minority party or belligerent neighbor. Making allies at the interstellar scale is hard, at the interplanetary everybody is within a day's communication time, but you also have increased pariah issues, as you cannot go around threatening to initiate Kessler Syndrome in any area without turning lots of hands against you, nor are they likely to tolerate messing around with dangerous weapons like mass synthesizing antimatter, or unleashing the replicator hordes, as they are likely to have tight surveillance on you and probably spies. That internal factions issue cuts both ways, as at the interstellar scale you probably don't have the invaders coordinating much with any loyalist saboteurs or agents, but they probably can at the interplanetary scale, and a spy at this scale need not be anything more than a spider-sized drone with a camera and a comm laser. We also don't want to ignore options like mass brainwashing technologies, to rid yourself of possible rebels or traitors to the rebellion, or an attack coming by a peace envoy landing and secretly releasing self-replicating killbots or nerve gas or a plague that kills everyone or makes them zombie-like or loyal. Tricks and treachery get a lot easier when you're not fighting light lag on every action and when brute force seems less viable. We do have an interesting case for in-between though, 
out in the Kuiper Belt or beyond, we have a lot of room for colonies that are nowhere near each other, and where an outbreak of dumb replication, for instance, does not have much raw material to quickly feed on. Hence I could imagine all sorts of abandoned or blighted rocks in space, full of nasty machines, or colonists torn drooling savages by a failed loyalty indoctrination bug. In the depths of the Oort Cloud and its billion icebergs in space, we may have a time in the future where millions of independent colonies, or minor confederations of them, spread over a light month, act as borderline pirates, or even outright pirates, while a million of those icebergs lie in states of decay, with colonies full of crazed mutants, or lobotomized savages, or near-mindless automata. Which is a good reminder that you never need FTL to have some good space opera or military sci-fi, the solar system is beyond immense, and able to support civilizations dwarfing any of the galactic empires sci-fi shows us. One final note, and that's the idea that fear of rebel interstellar colonies might be our big answer to the Fermi Paradox, the big question of where all the aliens are. It is entirely likely that we will never get near light speed travel, and we'll creep out at about 1% of light speed, and settle our own system and Kuiper Belt and Oort Cloud long before any interstellar colony gets much inertia of its own. We may decide that it's seeding the space around us, on every side, with rebels at best and hegemonizing swarms at worst, and that colonization isn't really worth it, and that those early colonies might see that happening to us and decide they would rather not waste their efforts at it either, so that no big civilizations ever emerge and the ones that do turn out to be right in their fears and get wiped out by some sort of semi-intelligent AI. Were that the case, it might be why we don't see any vast empires out there, because the seeds of the empire they thought they were sowing were merely the seeds of their own destruction. So today was all about distant space colonies rebelling, and a big factor in that is how fast you can get people or ships there to respond. And in the absence of FTL systems like warp travel, we are limited to light speed. Ships going close to light speed are not only hard to create but have a number of interesting properties, like time and space dilation, that we'll be examining in this month's Nebula exclusive Ultra Relativistic Spaceships, along with exploring what sorts of drive technology could permit such speeds. That's out now on Nebula, where you can not only see every regular episode of SFIA a few days early and ad-free, but all our other bonus content, including extended editions of mini-episodes, and more Nebula exclusives like ultra-relativistic spaceships, dark stars at the beginning of time, life as an asteroid miner, nomadic miners on the moon, space freighters, retro-causality, orc OR and free will, conformal cyclic cosmology, colonizing binary stars, and more. Nebula has tons of great content from an ever-growing community of creators. Using my link and discount is available now for just over $2.50 a month, less than the price of the drink or snack you might have been enjoying during the episode. When you sign up at my link, go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur, and use my code, IsaacArthur, you not only get access to all the great stuff Nebula offers, you'll also be directly supporting this show. Again, to see SFIA early, ad-free, and with all the exclusive bonus content, go to go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur. Some weeks back we discussed a petition to save the New Horizons space probe started by the National Space Society, which I currently have the honor of being the president of, and that petition was a great success that saved New Horizons, and again it was this audience that helped get that started and funded, and thank you. 
However, that's just one of many projects and goals the NSS works toward, everything from space settlement to developing solutions to energy and sustainability here at home, and supporting international student competitions like designing space habitats. In spite of the name, we are an international organization with chapters around the world. There's a QR code on the screen and a link in the episode description that will take you to a brief survey we're doing to see what members and like-minded folks think the NSS should be focusing on. All information is kept strictly private in the NSS, and you can learn more about us, our goals, and how to stay updated on them or join. If you believe in a greater future in space which we can all embrace, please take the time to do this brief survey, and add Astra. That will wrap us up for today, but we're just getting started with November, and next week is our 3 hour special, the Fermi Paradox Compendium of Solutions and Terms. And if that wasn't enough content for one week, or even a month, we will have our Sci-Fi Sunday episode on human-alien hybrids next weekend. Then we'll visit Mars to discuss what kind of domes, if any, we should use there, and how to make them on November 16th. Then we have an episode on double planet systems, ones where two habitable planets might orbit each other. And then on the 30th we'll wrap the month up with a look at Agri-Worlds, planets or habitats entirely devoted to farming. If you'd like to get alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notification buttons. You can also support the show on Patreon, and if you want to donate and help in other ways, you can see those options by visiting our website, isaacarthur.net. You can also catch all of SFIA's episodes, early and ad-free, on our streaming service Nebula, along with hours of bonus content at go.nebula.tv slash As always, thanks for watching, and have a great week.